is, uh, hell is one of those doctrines and those, um, you know, those things about Christianity that people really, really struggle with. Like, nobody here is, nobody here, nobody out there wants to believe in hell. In fact, a lot of people are repulsed by the idea of hell. And you'll often hear a lot of people saying, um, how could a good God send people to hell to be tortured for eternity? So people are just repulsed by it. It's this gross idea that people want nothing to do with. And so not only is the very idea of hell this thing that we don't want anything to do with, uh, Christians throughout history have weaponized hell and, and used it to belittle and, and attack people. And so we're also repulsed by Christianity and Christians who use this idea of hell to, to hurt people and, and, and to harm them. And whether that's intentional or unintentional, um, I, I was on YouTube just watching a bunch of random videos this week uh, as I kind of prepped for this. And uh, this, this woman was talking about how she was in an abusive relationship with her, with, with her husband, and, and, and so she divorced him. And her father, her own father, came up to her and said, because you divorced your husband, you're going to hell. And then she rejected God, she rejected the church, and, and, and never wanted anything to do with it again. So people are, are repulsed by this idea of, of hell, and it's so emotionally charged, right? Like all of us, we're having like 150-something different responses and emotions as, as we begin to, we haven't even talked about it yet, just the idea of it. So it's so emotionally charged. And we've covered a few topics in this series that are um, evidence questions, uh, things that we can talk about like science and, you know, the historicity of Jesus and things like that. But um, last week and tonight, last week we talked about the exclusivity of, of, of Jesus and the claims of Christianity. Um, and, and this week it's, a, it's a, moral, a moralistic question. So we're dealing with stuff that makes us, you know, it's, it's more so uh, emotional. It's about how we feel. It doesn't sit right. It makes us feel a certain way. It, it, it repulses us. And so hell, really in every sense of it, whether the idea of it or how people talk about it, it's, it's repulsive. And I'll be honest, like I am repulsed by hell. I don't like this idea. I don't like this topic. I don't want to talk about it. Uh, I was like talking to Roberta earlier. I was like, can we just cancel the ascent? Like, let's just, I, I want to preach the, you know, something else and, and, and get people excited. Let's, like, let's go reach people. And, um, and, and, and so it's this, this thing that, that, that a lot of people are repulsed by. But there's this quote by C.S. Lewis. We all love C.S. Lewis. Um, he says this, there is no doctrine which I would more willingly remove from Christianity than hell, if it lay in my power. But it has the full support of scripture, and specifically of our, lo of our Lord's own words. It has always been held by Christendom, and it has the support of reason. And so just because we are, we are repelled by an idea uh, doesn't make it false, right? Like, things that feel good aren't always right, and things that feel bad aren't always wrong. Just because we don't like something doesn't make it not true. And so what I want to do tonight is challenge our community, every single person who is here, um, in, in this idea that just because we don't like something doesn't mean that it's not true. Like, some of y'all are here and you're single. And you don't like being single, but guess what? You're still single. Right? So just because you don't like something doesn't mean that is not true. Truth is truth, no matter what, no matter how we feel. You like that one, hey? <laughs> so what we have to do, and this is my challenge, we have to force ourselves to move past our Western worldview, 
our Western world frame of reference to understand what Jesus and the scriptures are trying to teach us about hell. And we have to talk about hell. We really do. Because so much is at stake. Like, um, uh, what if hell is real? Right? Like, what if hell is real and people are going there? But what if it's not? And we're just talking about it, but it's not real, right? Like, so, so much is at stake. People are orienting their lives. People are treating people certain ways. People are, 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 are moved in different ways because of their beliefs about the afterlife. And so there's so much at stake here. So we have to talk about it. And for me, this is so heavy and, and, and real because um, I have a lot of friends and I know a lot of people who don't follow Jesus and, 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 and they don't have a relationship with God. I have family members who don't know Jesus, um, who refuse to, to come to church. And so what do you, and, and a lot of people here, you have that, you know people of different faiths, you know people who don't go to church, family members, your parents. Um, and, and so this is a, a, a big deal that we need to talk about. It. And so here's what we're going to do. Um, for the remainder of time that we have together, we're going to address a few questions, three bigger questions, and, and we're going to talk about hell a little bit. And what I want to just quickly acknowledge is that this is a, this is a flyby. Right, so I'm just gonna. I got 22 minutes left. I'm gonna give you as much as I can in that amount of time, but it's not enough. And 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 so if you have questions, you come talk to me right after the service. Send me a message on Instagram, or if you have my number, text me, call me, email me, whatever. Um, and and we can talk about it because this really is just the beginning of a conversation about this topic. This whole series is really just the beginning of of a conversation. So the first question that we're going to address together is this question: What <coughs> what is hell like? What is hell like? So there are a ton of ideas about hell. Uh, uh, there's some people out there who, who don't take hell seriously. It's a joke, like, ha, see you in hell, man. And it's like, yeah, I can't wait to see you there. And it's like this party thing, and it's, and it's fun. So some people don't take it seriously, and some people take it very seriously. Some people think that hell is flames and fire and torture, while others think hell is real. But if you go there, it's, it's, it's not an actual place. It's just annihilation. Um, uh, the Dante's Inferno, it's this I idea of hell having these layers. Uh, it was originally written about in this, in this poem, um, and it's, there's these layers of, of hell, and the, the kind of the lower you get, the worse uh, your sins were, and so the, the worse your punishments in hell will be. There was this guy named Origen uh, who was this uh, uh, old-school uh, Christ follower who began teaching this idea that we refer to now as universalism, which was basically that every single person is going to end up in heaven, whether they follow Jesus in this life or not. Uh, or some people would say, at the very least, they have a second chance. So once they die, they'll have a second chance to uh, follow Jesus and give their life to Jesus. Maybe they'll go for it to hell for a little while, but people believe in universalism. There's this pastor um, from the States or a former pastor named Rob Bell who says that hell is the hard things that we go through in life right now. So hell's not in the afterlife, some of us are, uh, are experiencing hell right now, you know, poverty and homelessness and, and abuse and things like that. It's hell on earth, and that's what hell is. And so um, there's all these ideas floating around about hell, but what is hell actually like? And I think in order to learn what hell is actually like, we have to go to the Bible. And so what we're going to do is um, camp out a lot in uh, Luke chapter 16. So if you have a Bible, turn to Luke chapter 16. We're going to spend a lot of time there. Also, if you're not taking notes, take notes, because there's going to be a lot of information, and you're just going to have to track with me. And so uh, we're going to read Luke chapter 16, uh, and we're going to read about uh, 12, 13 verses. Luke chapter 16, verses 19 to uh, 31. And this is what it says. Uh, Luke, by the way, was a follower of Jesus. Uh, he um, 
after Jesus had uh, ascended into heaven, so he had died and resurrected and ascended into heaven, he got around these Christian guys and he started learning about Jesus. And he wrote about Jesus' life based on the accounts of some of his friends who were with Jesus. He was a doctor, so super smart dude. And uh, yeah, he, he writes about the life of Jesus. But listen to what he says in Luke chapter 16, verses 19 to 31. He says, there was a rich man, and, and this is a story. He says, there was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and who feasted um, some, I, I, sumptuously <laughs> every day. And uh, at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered in sores, who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. So I learned about this this week, uh, what would happen when you were so rich back in the day, uh, when you were finished eating, you would, um, instead of like grabbing a cloth and washing your hands or washing it in water, you were so rich, you just kind of like showed it off, you would actually take bread and you would like clean your hands with bread and then the bread crumbs would fall to the ground and uh, you would allow your dogs to eat it. But um, in Lazarus's case, he wanted to, to eat it. He says, uh, he desired to be fed with the, fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. Uh, the poor man died and he was carried by angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades, um, Hades is not hell, but it is a, a Greek word for the Hebrew word sheol, which is kind of like this waiting period. So it wasn't quite hell, but it was kind of like hell because you were there awaiting judgment, but you weren't going to be in the presence of God. You were going to be away from the presence of God. And um, eventually Hades, sheol, would be thrown into hell, according to Revelation 20. But it says, and in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and he saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. But Abraham said, child, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things and Lazarus in like manner bad things. But now he is comforted here and you are in anguish. And besides all of this, uh, between us and you is a great chasm that has been fixed in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able to do so, and none may cross from there to us. And he said, well, then I beg you, Father, to send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, so that, they may, that he may warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment. But Abraham said, they have Moses and the prophets, let them hear them. And he said, no, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. And he said to them, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will, will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. And so um, what I want to do with this scripture is just make a few observations from Luke chapter 16 here uh, about hell. And the first observation that I want to make is this. Hell is a Jesus teaching. Hell is a Jesus teaching. Jesus teaches about hell. In fact, Jesus is the one telling this story as Luke records it. Hell is a Jesus teaching. In fact, uh, Jesus talks more about hell in the Gospels than he does about heaven. So Jesus teaches about, he, <coughs> he affirms, and he warns us about hell, as does the rest of the Bible, which is really interesting because people will often say, like, I like Jesus. I just don't, I, I, I love his grace and his love and his mercy. I just don't like the wrath of God and the judgment found in the Old Testament. I like the Jesus love part. I like, you know, the, the, the sweetness, treating people well and being kind and all of that stuff, but I don't want the wrath of God. But hell is a Jesus thing. 
Hell is a Jesus teaching. Uh, all throughout the Gospels, Jesus is teaching about hell. In Mark chapter 9, Jesus is teaching about hell. He says, hey, um, if you're sinning, you should cut off your arm or pluck out your eye because it's actually better for you to not have those things now than to have those things and end up in hell. Right? So he's teaching about hell. In, in, in Matthew chapter 10, he's teaching um, his followers. He says, don't fear man. They can't do anything to you, but fear the one who can take your life in hell. He's, he's teaching about hell constantly. He, he taught about it extensively, and he warned people about it. Uh, pastor Mark Clark, he's a pastor from Vancouver. Um, his book, The Problem of God, is actually what this entire series is based off of. Um, if you want to do some follow-up um, and further study, buy his book and, uh, and, and learn even more. But he says this, if you want to get rid of hell, therefore you have to get rid of Jesus. And that's the irony. If we're going to say that the love of God was emphasized to a greater extent by Jesus in the New Testament, we have to acknowledge that the wrath of God also gets ratcheted up in the New Testament. We can't escape the fact that hell, as much as the love of, and the grace of God, is a central New Testament, Jesus-driven teaching. So hell is actually pretty much unclear until we get to the New Testament and Jesus begins to teach further on it and expand on what it is. So Jesus, or hell is a Jesus teaching. Another observation from Luke chapter 16 is that hell is forever. Hell is eternal. In, um, in verse 26, Jesus tells this story, and, and Lazarus, he wants, or, or the rich man wants Lazarus to come over to the other side and bring him just a drop of water, and, and Abraham tells him, hey, he can't. There's this great chasm, and there's this basically this wall. No one can cross over from either side, no, no, no matter what. There will be no crossover, and we see this teaching um, emphasized as well in other parts of the scriptures. Second um, Thessalonians, if you want to turn there, Second Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 8 and 9 say this. Um, uh, it kind of cuts off in the middle, but it says, inflaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and the glory of his might. And so uh, Paul, who writes this letter to the Thessalonian church, says that uh, there is going to be eternal destruction. Jesus, uh, as he teaches in Matthew 25, verse 46, he, he describes hell as eternal punishment. And so hell is eternal. It's not purgatory. It's not a waiting room. It's not temporary. You can't get out, and there are no second chances. Hell is forever. Now, some scholars have tried to take certain scriptures from the Bible and use them to say, no, actually, there is a second chance. Um, actually, when you die, uh, you can decide after your death to uh, surrender everything to Jesus, and you can still end up in heaven. Again, this is called universalism. But when you look at all of those passages in context, um, you see very quickly that these arguments, they break down and they fall apart. So, for example, there's a scripture in 1 Timothy. Uh, Paul, again, writes this letter to his protege, Timothy, and it says this in 1 Timothy 2.4, that God desires all people to be saved and come to the knowledge of, of, of Jesus. So they say, well, it says that God desires all people to be saved, and therefore, if God desires it, well, God gets what he wants because he's God, and if he wants it, he gets it because he's God. But this is where we have to talk about the, um, the sovereign will of God, <coughs> the sovereign will of God, or the decreed will of God, and the moral or the revealed will of God. And so the moral or the revealed will of God would be something that God wants. Like God uh, obviously wants people to stop sinning. 
God obviously, you know, wants people to know him and follow him and obey him. Um, but people have free will and they get to choose whether or not they do that. And so it's something that he desires and something that he wants, but maybe not necessarily something that'll happen. This is where most texts that, or all texts that uh, talk about, you know, God's desiring all people to be saved fall into, then his, um, his sovereign will would be, you know, Jesus going to the cross. That was going to happen no matter what. Things that you can't mess with, things that human beings can't get in the way of, things that are going to happen no matter what. So there's a difference between uh, what God desires and what God will for sure make happen. So in the same way that heaven, no one says, oh, heaven is just going to be temporary. Uh, it's going to last forever. In the same way that heaven will be everlasting, hell will also last forever. In my opinion, there's simply no way to read the Bible in its context and, and trying to discover its true intentions uh, and come to any other conclusion. Like, I would love to have come to another conclusion that it wasn't forever, but unfortunately, as we read scripture in context, uh, in my opinion, we cannot. Uh, the third observation that I want to make is this, that hell is awful. Hell is awful. Um, when, I was a, when I was a kid and I didn't really know much about hell, I, I thought like heaven was lame because you, you hear about heaven and you're like, oh, it's just babies with their naked butts and, and they're on clouds and they're floating around and someone's playing a harp and God's this guy with a beard and he's just like chilling, lounging while these people are just kind of floating around doing their thing. I'm like, that's boring. But hell was like the party, man. Rock and roll party, drink, have fun. You know, it was just this sweet place. So I was like, man, hell seems so great and, 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 and heaven seems so lame. Um, but when we look at scripture, we actually see that that's far from reality and far from how Jesus teaches. In fact, as Jesus tells this story in Luke chapter 16, uh, he tells us that the rich man is in torment, the rich man is in agony and anguish, he is thirsty, uh, he's anxious about his family, he's just anxious and he's lonely. Um, in Matthew chapter um, 18, or ch chapter 8 verse 12, it says this, um, again, kind of halfway through, but it says, while the sons of the kingdom will be thrown into the outer darkness, and in that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. In Matthew 13, 42, um, it says this, and, and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing uh, of teeth. So as Jesus is describing this place, it's, it's not exciting. It's not a party. Uh, it, it's this awful place. In Matthew 10, 28, Jesus uses this word to describe hell. Uh, it's Gehenna. Um, and, and oftentimes, hell is actually, the word that is translated to hell is this word Gehenna. And Gehenna was a real place. It was this trash dump outside of the city of Jerusalem. And uh, it was this smoldering fire where for for, for years and years and years, the people in the city of Jerusalem would go out and they would throw this trash in this, in this pile. And it was just, the flame was constantly going and it smelled bad and maggots and worms were growing. And they would throw, um, if, if, if a family couldn't afford to properly bury their family member or if someone had a disease or there was an orphan or something like that, they would actually throw that body into this fire and it would burn and it would smell and it was just this terrible, terrible place. And Jesus actually uses this, this word to uh, describe hell. So, so hell, as we read about in, in scripture, is not this fun place. It's awful. But, but there's something I want to point out as we talk about how, how scripture talks about hell. Um, the Bible often uses something that we would call apocalyptic language and, and imagery. 
And what it does is, it, and it actually uses this to make a theological point. So Jesus, when he talks about hell, is actually using apocalyptic language and imagery. So essentially what it is, is it's symbols and metaphors to describe hell. So hell in and of itself is not a metaphor, but Jesus uses these metaphors, these symbols, to describe what hell is going to be like. So when he talks about there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth, he's trying to let us know there's going to be intense pain and unspeakable torment. When he uses the image of, uh, of fire, the lake of sulfur, or, or the fiery furnace, it's trying to tell us about the disintegration and, and the judgment that will be in this place that we call hell. Uh, when it talks about the utter darkness, it's trying to warn us and tell us about the, the isolation and the loneliness that will be experienced in hell. And so it's describing the nature of hell, not the literal experience of hell. Now, some of us are like, oh, that's awesome. I'm so glad it's a metaphor. I'm so glad it's just an imagery, but that's not actually a good thing. The, the, the symbol is actually much, much worse. The, sim or the reality is actually much, much worse than the symbol. The symbol is just a taste. Uh, it gets much worse in real life. Um, I heard this example of a, you know, when someone mops a floor in a restaurant and they put the, the slippery caution, slippery floor, and you see the little man on the, on, the, uh, on the picture of the man, and he's like, ah, and you're like, oh, that looks bad. I don't want to fall and hit my head. I'm going to walk carefully and, and make sure that I don't slip. You see the symbol, you're like, oh, that's bad. But if you actually fell and hit your head, you'd be like, this is so much worse than the picture, right? Like, it's so much worse. That's kind of what it's like. And so it actually doesn't let us off the hook. But here's the thing. Essentially, this is what... Um, you look at all the scriptures about hell in the Bible. This is what it's trying to teach us about hell. Hell is the removal of God. Hell is the absence of God. Um, James 1, chapter 17, James was the brother of Jesus. He, he writes and he tells us, uh, it's found in the New Testament. He says, every good and perfect gift is from God. And so if hell is the removal of God, hell is also the removal of every good thing that we could experience, and so it's awful. It's this terrible place because God is not there, and if God is not there, then all the good things that he gives us with, gives us and, and blesses us are not there because his presence is not there. So there's no relationships, there's no friendships, there's no warmth, there's no food, there's no comfort, there's no joy, there's no rest. Every good thing that you enjoy is not there. One scholar called hell the land of no more good. So hell is real. Hell is e eternal and it's awful. Then the next question we have to ask ourselves is, well, what's the point of hell? Why did God make hell in the first place? And um, I want to read you just a, a, a scripture really quickly. Matthew 25, verse 41. This is what it says. It says, then he will say to those on his left, depart from me, you cursed into the um, from me, you cursed into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. In Revelation uh, 20, chapter 20, verse 7, it says this. It says, um, from 7 on down to 10, it says, And when the thousand years have ended, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, cool names, to gather them for battle. Their, their number is like the sand of the sea. They marched up over the broad plain of the earth, and they surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city, but fire came down from heaven and consumed them. And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were, and they were tormented day and night forever and ever. And so we see that the purpose of hell, the, the, the first purpose of hell, hell actually wasn't created for people. 
hell is a place where God is going to deal righteously with Satan. He's going to take care of Satan. Satan, of course, is the devil, the enemy um, that we find all throughout Scripture. He is the embodiment of evil. He is the source of shame and abuse and pain and addiction. And the Bible teaches us that the devil wants to destroy you. I don't know if you know this, but you have a, a, a spiritual force that is constantly trying to ruin your life and destroy you. And, and so contrary to popular belief, the devil is actually not in hell. Hell is not his headquarters. He's not there. That's not where he kind of roams and where he plots. But it's where he's going to be sent when he is punished for all of his evil. So he's not there yet, but he will be one day. But the other purpose is this. Uh, God is going to um, deal righteously with unbelievers. So in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 8 and 9, which we read, it talks about how there will be vengeance for those who have rejected the gospel, for those who have rejected the kingdom of heaven. And this is the part where we struggle. Because we're like, Satan being thrown into hell? Yeah, makes sense. That dude's terrible. Uh, bad people like, like Hitler were like, them being thrown into hell and going to hell? Absolutely. Send them. That's great. He needs to be there. But when you talk about, oh, un unbelievers are, are going there? So like, like good people who like pay their taxes and, and, and send their kids to you know, good schools and just want the best for their families and, and, and you know, they're, they're good people. They, they maybe give to charities every once in a while. Maybe they volunteer a few hours a week like those people. So just people who just don't know Jesus and don't follow Jesus are going to go to this place. And it's this really tough pill to swallow and it doesn't seem fair. How can God send someone to hell? just for not believing in him. And, 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 and furthermore, how can God send someone to spend eternity in this place called hell, this awful place for 70 or 80 years of sin and, and, and rejecting him, which actually leads us to our next question, our final question, which is this, how can a loving God send people to hell? <coughs> how can a loving God send people to hell? And, and so we got to talk about two things. Uh, when we talk, when we answer this question, the first is justice, the second is free will. But when it comes to justice, we need to also address this, since when do humans, and, and we think it's wrong, right? Like, we're like, ah, oh, for 70 or 80 years of sin, you're going to send someone to eternity in hell? That's not just, that's not fair. The question we need to ask is, since when do we as created human beings get to decide what is just and unjust? There's this scripture found in the book of Job. I want to read a, a few verses of it for you. Essentially what is happening is this guy named Job, he's this righteous guy, he's this believer, uh, he, he's suffering, he's struggling, he's going through it, like he lost everything, like it is not good, and he questions God, and he's like, God, what are you doing, where are you, why is my life like this, he questions God, and this is what God says to him in response, it says in Job 38, well then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind, and he said, who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Dress for action like a man. I will question you, and you will make it known to me. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me, if you have understanding. Who determined its measurements? Surely you know. Or who stretched the line upon it? Or, 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 where, or what were uh, its bases, on what were its bases sunk? Or who laid its cornerstone? When the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy. And so essentially what God is saying is like, were you here when, when the world was created? Did you decide that the ocean would end here and the land would start here and the mountain would rise to this height and the valley would go to this depth? Did you decide that? Were you there? Do you know? Oh, you don't because I created you? Well, then let me be God and you just be man. 
And, and so that doesn't answer our question, but we do need to walk into these big topics with that perspective and that understanding that we are, uh, we're, just, we're just people. And if God truly did create us, he knows a lot more than we know, and he gets to determine what is just and what is unjust. Now, in life, when justice is served, uh, the punishment is, is based on the weight of the crime not the amount of time it took to commit the crime, right? So it, it could take five minutes to murder someone. How silly would it be if that person got five minutes in prison? It's not based on the amount of time that it took to commit that crime. It's based on the weight of that crime. But when we talk about sin and when we talk about hell, we want to make the punishment about the time that it took to commit the crime, not about the weight of, of, of the crime or who the crime was committed against. So um, if you and maybe you have siblings when you were younger, if you got into a fight with your siblings or you got into an argument with them, your parents might come along and say, hey, that's bad, go stand in the corner for two minutes, right? But if you got into a fight or an argument with your parents, you're grounded for a week. Why? Because the person you committed the crime against has a different authority. It's one thing to argue with your siblings. It's a whole other thing to argue with your parents because there's a different authority. There's a different weight there. Or, or we could put it this way. Uh, you're driving down the street and all of a sudden you hit a cat. Praise God, you hit a cat. Um, <laughs> some of you love cats. I don't. Not at all. Uh, not my thing. So you hit a cat. You hit a cat. You hear the boom, 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 and you're like, yes. And uh, so, so you hit the cat. You, you hit the cat. What's gonna happen? Nothing, right? You just drive off. But you're driving down the street. Well, <laughs> well, it's already dead, right? Stuck in the wheel well. <laughs> I, love, I love cat people, though. I love cat people. Uh, just not the thing they love. Did I go too far on this? I don't know. Anyways, so you hit a cat. You just kind of drive off. There's not really any consequences, uh, but you're driving down the street. You hit a human. That human dies. You're going to jail, right? So same crime. You ran something over with your car, but because the, the person that the crime was committed against is different, the punishment is going to be different. So the punishment varies based on the weight of the crime. And the Bible actually tells us the punishment for the weight of the crime committed against God. It says this in Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin is death. The, the punishment, the crime of sin is death. And so in this case, when it comes to God, we have committed the ultimate crime against the ultimate being, and the crime is the, the, the full-out rejection of God, and so the punishment uh, is death. And death is literally the, the absence of God. So if God is life and all things good, well, then the absence of God is death and all things bad. And you know, another thing that's interesting, in Luke chapter 16, uh, the, the rich man, while he was in Hades in torment, he not once says this is unjust. He, he reveals his agony, he reveals his suffering, he reveals how much pain and, and torment he is in, but not once does he cry out, God, this is so unjust, how could you do this to me? Why? Because he knew that his punishment was just. Based on the weight of his actions, his punishment was justified. And so God is, although it might seem like he's unfair, God is perfectly fair and he is perfectly just, but he's not just just. He's not just just. He is also love. And, and, and so God is so loving that he has given us the, the, the ability to choose to follow him or reject him. We call this free will. God has given us free will. And I would actually argue, this would be my conclusion, is that God does not send people to hell, people as they exercise their free will, 
send themselves to hell, or they go to hell on their own accord. Hell is a result of our decision to reject God. It's the ultimate fulfillment of, God, I don't want anything to do with you. God, I don't want anything to do with you, and hell is the ultimate fulfillment of that. Uh, another quote by Mark Clark, he says this, he says, in one sense, hell can be understood as the outworking of our choice to experience total autonomy from God. We're allowed to be our own God, and we're allowed to sustain and provide for ourselves. The problem in this is that it is impossible, and we are thus left with nothing because everything came from his hand. So the reality is, is that we send ourselves to hell, and, and God is not thrilled about this. God is not pumped or excited about people going to hell. Uh, it breaks his heart. Uh, he is not this sick being uh, delighting in the suffering of people. Uh, it, this grieves him and it breaks his heart. But listen to this, this, this quote from a guy named D.A. Carson. He says, hell is not a place where people are consigned because they are pretty good people who didn't believe the right stuff for 80 years. They're consigned there first and foremost because they defy their maker and they want to be at the center of the universe. Hell is not filled with people who have already repented, only God isn't gentle enough or good enough to let them out. It's filled with people who for all eternity still want to be the center of the universe. What is God to do? If he says it doesn't matter to him, then God is no longer a God to be admired. And for him to act in any other way in the face of such blatant defiance would be to reduce God himself. So hell is not a place where people are sent. Hell is not a place where people are sent. It is the place that remains when we send God away. But here's the amazing thing. Hell is such a heavy topic, but here's the amazing thing, is that Jesus went through hell so that we would never have to. Jesus went through hell so that we would never have to. There's a scripture, maybe you've heard it, John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever should believe in him would not perish but have everlasting life. There, there's another scripture found in, in the book of Romans. Romans chapter 5, verses 6 through 11, it says, For while we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, although perhaps for a good person one might dare to die. But God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Therefore, we have now been justified by his blood. Much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by his life. And more than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. There's this story that Jesus tells in, in Luke chapter 15. It's the story about the shepherd, and he has 100 sheep, and one of the sheep goes missing, and he actually leaves the 99, and he goes after the one, and he finds the one, and they, they throw this huge, huge party. And the reality is, is that Jesus came to snatch people out of the pits of hell. Jesus is going after lost people. Jesus made a way for lost people so that they would be able to escape the reality of hell. He is pursuing people. And where the devil in John 10, 10 comes to steal, kill, and destroy, that same scripture says that Jesus came that we may experience life and life to the full. Now, here's the thing as we kind of wrap this up. If we don't accept the reality of hell, we will never appreciate the glory of the gospel and the goodness of Jesus. The, the, the goodness of the gospel is incomplete without hell. And, and as, as, as we live our lives, what we believe about tomorrow, what we believe about the afterlife, affects how we live today. 
And I believe, in my opinion, that the reality of hell compels us and challenges us to, to change the way that we live our lives. And it does that in two primary ways. The first thing is this, the, gospel, uh, the, the, the reality of hell compels us and challenges us to live our lives on mission. It challenges us to live our lives on mission. I, I, a long time ago, I heard this quote from this atheist um, who was talking, and he says, if Christians really believe what the Bible says about hell and what they claim to believe, then they need to be going around and telling everybody. Because how could they just allow people to end up in this place? I'm paraphrasing him, of course. He's just like, if you believe this, you got to do something about it. How, how, how odd, how, how rude, how awful for you to believe that this place exists and just allow people to go there without saying anything. So the reality of hell compels us and urges us to live lives that are on mission, to warn people, to tell people about this, this, this place called hell. And, and God is, God is attempting. God has done his part, and now he's attempting to let people know about his salvation work through his followers. Like, we're, there, there's, there's this disaster, and we're like these little, like, rescue boats that have been sent out. And if we aren't on mission, if we aren't doing our jobs, people are going to drown. People are going to die. So we need to live lives on mission. And I'm going to talk about what that looks like a little more next week and um, how we can begin to go out and rescue people and, and live lives that are, that are on mission. The second is this. The reality of hell compels us and urges us to live lives of gratitude. Like every day we should wake up and be like, thank you, Jesus. Thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you that I don't have to go to this place, that I can know you and be in relationship with you. And it's not even just thank you from, for saving me from hell. Because so many people are sold this idea that Jesus is fire insurance. Like, kid, do you want to go to hell? No, then you need Jesus. But it's so much more than that because it's not just about avoiding hell. It's about being with Jesus. It's not just being saved from hell, but it's about being saved to Jesus, being brought back and reconciled so we can have a relationship with God. God saw people and they were suffering and they were distant and far away from him and they were helpless and hopeless. And so he made a way on the cross so that people could know him in this life and in the next. So he didn't just save us from hell, he saved us to himself. 